Good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you out there. I want to add my welcome to Seth, especially to those of you who are here for the first time. Uh, we're so glad you're here. Glad to have the chance to be with you and hopefully to meet you and get to know you a little bit uh, later today. I also want to just explain quickly what we're about to do for the next 40 minutes or so. We're going to be walking through a part of God's Word. We as Christians believe one of the most important things we believe is that God has spoken. The same God that made us, that upholds everything that is right now, that's given us every breath we've taken this morning, is also a God who speaks and who's spoken to us in a way that's been recorded and preserved for thousands of years in the words of the Bible. So as a way of, of, sol- of expressing solidarity and humility before that word, we try to take a piece of it each Sunday and walk through it, try to understand it. And this spring, we're walking through an old book called Exodus, one of the first books in the Old Testament it tells the story of God's people, Israel, and how they came to be and what they came to know about their God through the way he related to them in their exodus out of Egypt. So one of the things I said a couple of weeks ago when I was setting up the series is that Exodus, there's a couple things to know about Exodus. One is that it's iconic. It's familiar. It has some of the most, uh, the most recognizable and impactful stories in the whole Bible and, and I would say in all of human history and recorded stories handed down from all time, some of the most important ones. And the most impactful ones are in this book. And that's going to be a blessing and a curse for us as we come to them because we're going to it's a blessing in that we get to talk about them and they're amazing and it can be a curse in that we think we already know what they mean and sometimes that can skew what we see. So we're going to be fighting against that. That's going to be true today. Another thing I said a couple of weeks ago is that when we come to the, to the book of Exodus, we're coming to a book meant to help us understand who God is. That in, in and amongst all the other details, all the twists and turns, all the interesting stories and fascinating accounts that we'll cover, um, The thread that ties them all together is that these stories are teaching us about God and who he is. And that's going to be true today. Today, those two things, the iconic nature of a lot of these stories and the purpose of these stories to teach us about who God is, come together in a a really powerful and recognizable way. In a story that features simply a conversation between God and Moses, whom he had raised up, through whom he planned to deliver his people. It's a story of a conversation that takes place in the middle of nowhere through the medium of a bush on fire, but not burning. It's bizarre. It's everything about it makes it clear something unusual, even supernatural is happening here. And in these words that spread out in time would have only taken a few minutes. What we're going to see today is God's entrance onto the stage. If Exodus, if you think about it like a play, and we've already seen some of the main characters introduced, we've, we've, we've heard this character talked about, but this is where he shows up for the first time. In this conversation, his first act to save Israel from their bondage was to have a talk with Moses about who he is, to define himself for Moses. And to lay out for Moses what he planned to do. If it's true, like I've said before, if it's true that this story is meant to teach us who God is, if the twists and turns of it are all going to be, be pushing that agenda forward, then it matters that God starts out with a conversation that tells us as clearly as he can who he is. It matters for the same reason. Here's, here's the way one person put it. It matters that, that the story starts here with God defining himself in words. It matters for the same reason that, that a few degrees of difference at the beginning of a flight that leaves Boston is the difference between landing in Seattle or, or landing in Los Angeles. 
A few degrees of difference at the beginning can have a, a, a huge impact on where you end up. And that's why I think this conversation is put right here where it is at the very beginning so we know what to do with everything that comes after it. And that's why I'm so excited for us to spend some, a few minutes on it today. What we're going to cover this morning doesn't have much action. But it is immensely practical for us. Yes, it's a conversation that focuses on the being and the nature of God, defining him. Yes, it will touch on some philosophical ideas that could keep all the philosophers in history busy for all of their lives and never get to the end of it. Yes, it is a a heavily theological section of this book, but it is also immensely practical in some ways I want to show you. Because friends, this 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 is a conversation that orients us to who God is, not just to the story that we're about to be told, but to who he is in the world and for the world and, and, and in the midst of it all, to who we are. Because it's only in knowing the God who made us that we can know, truly know ourselves, who he's made us to be and what he's made us for. So what I want to do this morning is to walk through this conversation and to try to pull out for you three statements that God makes about who he is. I want to make sure the beauty and the power of those statements is as clear as I can make it. And then I want to make sure that at each step, as we consider who God is and what makes him who he is and what makes him beautiful, we're also going to be talking about what it means for who we are and how we relate to him. Three statements. God's introduction of himself to Moses and to us. Now, what I want to do is read the first few verses of chapter 3. We're going to cover the whole chapter. What I want to do is start with the first few verses. That'll set up a, a couple of things that I want to say at the top. And then we'll, we'll work our way through the rest of the chapter as we move ahead this morning. For this first reading, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word. While I read uh, uh, this uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, God's meeting with Moses. This is the word of the Lord to us. Now... Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. And so Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is God's word. You can be seated. The last chapter that we considered, chapter 2, last week, ended with a powerful paragraph. The chapter had, had described something of what Israel's life was like in bondage, as slaves, at the disposal of the powers of Egypt. It was terrible. All they had left, the only move they could make, 
by the end of that chapter was to groan. The last chapter that we looked at covered decades of history. This chapter slows down almost to a halt for the space of a single conversation on a single day in the life of a single man. And on this day, thousands of Hebrews woke up in shackles in Egypt. Thousands of them went to fields that weren't theirs. They went to brick-making sites. They went to building projects where they would work and bake in the sun. Some of them wouldn't make it through the day. This would be a day on which some Hebrew mothers gave birth to sons. A day surely they had been dreading. A day when they would go through the trauma of birth and learn that they'd given birth to a son only to have that son taken from their hands and thrown into the river. In other words, this was a normal day in the experience of thousands of Hebrews living their pitiable lives at the disposal of Egypt's powers. And our text says, now, or maybe in yours, meanwhile, while all that's going on, a normal day in the life of this afflicted people, a Hebrew, now in exile, once raised in Egyptian luxury, exiled for fear of his life, is herding sheep that don't belong to him in the middle of a nowhere in a place called Midian. And as he tends his flock, in this wilderness, he reaches a mountain called Horeb. In most ways, it would have been a typical mountain in a land full of similar mountains. But at this mountain, on this day, the God who saw, the God who heard, the God who knew and remembered his promises to his people decides to speak. On this mountain, God came down. There's a lot about this story, part of the story that we just read that we're tempted to spend time on. Probably because a lot of people have spent a lot of time on pretty much every detail that we just covered in our reading. Why, uh, who is this angel of the Lord? that God uses to speak his words. Why a burning bush? Why would he choose that as his way of showing up? There's the incredible holiness that comes with God's presence, the, the presence, the, the, the command to take off your sandals, to don't come any further. And there's the rightful fear that Moses experiences, not wanting to see, turning away because he doesn't know what would happen to him to be in the presence of God. There's all of these details, all of them worthy of time and attention, all of them with tons of ink spilled over the years all of them marking a scene, this as a scene from another world, a supernatural world breaking into what we know. But of all the details we could focus on from this scene, what I want to focus on this morning is what God says. The first statement about God, I want to make sure you notice, comes as an answer to Moses' question. I mentioned earlier, we want to focus on three statements that, that God makes in this conversation with Moses about who he is. The first one comes out as an answer to a question that Moses asks him. I want to pick up where I left off in reading. In verse 7, God launches into putting in his own words 
what the narrator described at the end of chapter 2, that all along he's been seeing everything. He's been hearing the cries of his people. He's going to do something about it. Listen to the way he says this to Moses. The Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. See, it's seen, heard, knows. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hiphites, and the Jebusites. And he repeats himself. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. He's saying, I've been here all along. I've seen it all. Now is when I choose to act. And if you're Moses... You can almost imagine his excitement rising. I mean, for one thing, he's, he's hearing words come out of a bush. We're meant to be in awe of that. That wasn't a normal thing even for this place that was more open to the supernatural than we tend to be. But, but now he's actually hearing out of this bush, this voice that he can't control or could never have predicted, say that, that the very thing he's been wanting is about to happen. They're going to be set free and not just set free, but brought into a land of good and plenty. Think of the contrast between where they were, working fields that didn't belong to them with no hope of ever benefiting from their labor, being at the disposal of people who hated them, to now being placed in their own land that's flowing with milk and honey, full of plenty. God is telling him exactly what he wants to hear. And then in verse 10, as one person put it, we get the sting at the end of the tale. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Wait, what? You're going to send me to face down Pharaoh and demand the release of his labor force? I think Moses asked the only reasonable question faced with those odds. To go to this man with no army and ask him to give up one of his most valuable resources that he was, that he was squeezing out for all, of it was worth, all it was worth. It, it, it makes sense that Moses would ask his question, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Why should you expect me to be able to pull this off? Why should I expect that of myself? Who am I? And friends, we got no shortage of best-selling authors or bloggers or lifestyle TV show personalities who would eagerly line up to answer this question for Moses. Who am I for this obstacle I'm facing in my life? Who are you? You're Moses. You're strong. You're brave. You're utterly unique and beautiful. You can do this. Whatever else you want to do, just put your mind to it. Buck up. Get it done. You can. And that isn't what God says at all. Moses asks, who am I for this challenge? And God answers, not with reassuring him about himself. Actually, not, not with any word about him at all. But with a claim that turns Moses' focus onto God. Who am I, Moses asks. God's answer I will be with you. I will be with you. You see what he's doing here? God, I think the implication of, of God's answer to Moses is 
that Moses, you're a nobody. <laughs> At one level, you're, you're, you're nothing. You're not the point. You, you couldn't do this. You're not wrong about that. And I think that Moses is heroic, for the record. I love the story of Moses. I love what his character becomes. I love what he does and the way God uses him. There's a sense in which he is a hero. And the Bible treats him that way. But he is not the hero. And he was never meant to be the one to pull off what God sends him to do. Do you see why this is such good news for us? This first statement that God makes about who he is as an answer to Moses' question. He is with us. That's how he defines himself. This isn't the first time, friends, and it is not the last time that God is going to make a claim like this. In fact, this is admittedly an aside, but I hope you'll just bear with me for just a second because this is so sweet. This claim, I will be with you, it echoes. It bounces all around the Old Testament and it comes straight down the pipe of the story of Jesus' birth. When Jesus is born, when Jesus is born, his coming before he's born is announced by another angel, another angel of the Lord who says, you will call his name, he will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. This same Jesus, as he prepared to leave his disciples, said he would send to them his spirit to be with them, not just with them somehow in a way that, that is even more unbelievable than a bush that burns without burning. He'll be within you. God is still making this claim about himself to those who trust him. I will be with you. And that means that wherever you are, Whatever you got in front of you, whatever commands God has called you to obey, whatever circumstances God has brought into your life, you have no reason, friends, to believe that you are sufficient. And you don't need to be. You just need to know that he's with you. Who am I? We might ask for what he's put in front of me. Well, maybe the answer is I'm a failure. That's been true enough in my life. Who am I? I'm weak of will and of heart. Who am I? I'm fearful. I'm anxious. I'm fickle and, and far worse. Who am I for what I'm facing? Well, I'm no one. But God is with me. And that'll be enough. The first statement I want to make sure you guys notice out of this conversation is God's statement about himself. Who are you? To Moses, to Israel, I am the God who is with you. That's number one. The next statement that he makes about who he is gets us into the iconic territory I was talking about earlier. I love the way Moses responds to this first claim that God makes. God, you know, God has just said, I will be with you. And then Moses, Moses, knowing that he's not up to delivering Israel from Egypt, knowing he can't go on his own, Knowing God's just said he'll be with him, uh, Moses is right to wonder, why should I trust that God can do that job? It's a big job. I mean, if, if you were trying to face down a tank and all you had was a little kid with a Nerf gun next to you, it might be kind of a sentimentally encouraging thing that he's with you. But it wouldn't actually make you feel any more optimistic about your chances 
it wouldn't be terribly useful to you. So Moses has just been told that God is with him. Now he wants to know, who is this God that's with me? And why is this a good thing? He wants credentials. I think what he says next, it's hard for me not to read it as almost a, a, a passive-aggressive thing. Moses says to God, so, so if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? I mean, asking for a friend here, of course. If someone should, 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 should want to know who this is that we're dealing with, what would you want me to tell them? God answers his question in phases, layer upon layer. Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Then he answers him again. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Then he answers again, verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the iconic, almost cryptic answer that everyone has to deal with in this text, in this story. And and I'll just go ahead and tell you, nobody that I've read knows for sure the full meaning of this name, of, of, of why he says, I am who I am. But I I do believe that there's enough clarity and enough consensus among among people who study this at a level I couldn't and have written about it that, that that we can see a main point there even if we don't know the full weight of it. And, And friends, the point that we can see in this statement, I am who I am, is a point that goes straight to what Moses is worried about most. And it's a point that touches everything about who you are and what your place is in this world. Now, I'll go ahead and concede to you. This is a bit of a strange way to answer the question about what your name is. Because God is not using here a personal name at all. There's no breakthrough insight from the historical background that makes it obvious why he would have chosen to answer a question about who he is with a verb. But that's what he does. A form of the verb to be, I am. It's not a label. It's not a personal name. It's not, not even a, a made-up one of his own design. It's, it's a verb. And there's a lot of different ways that it could be translated, a lot of different shades that you could put on it, but it, it basically says what the translation I read said. You could shade it, I will be who I will be. That might be a good way to do it, according to experts that know what I don't. That would emphasize God's right to define himself. You could shade it, I cause to be. That's another compelling way to to shade it. That would emphasize his power over everything as its source and creator. Or simply, I am who I am. Which emphasizes his permanence, maybe, and his dependability. The fact that he doesn't change like the rest of us. He just is. But friends, however you shade it, the the claim here is that, that God just is. He exists He is the fundamental reality behind everything else that is. And for his existence, he doesn't depend on, nor could he be threatened by anything else that exists. He's free. He's completely free. Now, I get that that stretches our minds, to say the least. I get it. 
but, but I don't want you to mistake what, what sounds like a philosophical claim for a philosophical diversion as if we're just into the weeds and beyond what could be useful to us. Because this claim that God simply is, that underneath everything else, God exists, underneath this claim is tremendous importance and two implications that I especially want you to notice. Here's the first one. When God tells us, I am who I am, among all the other things that he could mean in that, we will continue plumbing for the rest of our lives. One thing that he means is that God is the only necessary being and everything else depends on him. That's number one. Huge implication. God is the only necessary being. He's the only thing that must exist. And everything else depends on him, comes from him, including me. Everything that exists besides God exists because he decided that it would. Because of his will. Accomplished by his power. Here's another way to say the same thing. Friends, God's life is the only life that isn't a gift. Undeserved and freely given. Everything besides him has a life given to him. If you think much along this line, it, does, it doesn't take long to be able to see how everything, everything is interrelated and dependent in, the, exist, in, 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 the, in the, the things like us and, and like the rest of our world, the things that are given, the things that are without any say in the matter, just born. Every, there, there's this incredible interdependence that we live with. Say a minute, something about that because I think it'll help you see the incredible claim that God is making about himself, how he's not like us. Think, think about the fact, think about it this way. I, just, just take my own example. I had no say in being born at all. It just happened to me. Much less did I have a say in being born into a hospitable and safe environment. I had nothing to do with there being food given to me and medical care. I didn't choose this planet to be born onto that I didn't create that, that works well to sustain my life. I just learned this week that I depend on oxygen that comes from seagrass I didn't know about that feeds sea turtles who would eat it all if it weren't for sharks who keep them moving around for fear of their lives. I'm interconnected with all of that. I had no idea. My life at every single level and yours too and every other life on earth Human, non-human, dependent, it's dependent, it's derived, it's enmeshed in a bunch of forces that you can't take credit for and have no hope of controlling. That's true for everything. Our lives are contingent. We are because, fill in the blank. But friends, what's behind it all? If you really drilled down, what would you find? Why is there anything rather than nothing. I know, we're, I know we're stretching our minds here, but the existence alone is just mind-boggling if you take a minute to think about it. The sheer fact that anything is should shock us and humble us. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever wonder why there's something and not Nothing. Of course, there's plenty of explanations for the universe that don't depend on God. I get that. I'm not, I'm not, a, I, I'm not uh, ignorant of that fact. There's a lot of smart people out there 
who've given their lives trying to explain where things come from and how things got to be where they are. But friends, think about this. It seems to me that the general consensus out there, no matter what you think about God, if you're studying the natural world for a living, the general consensus out there is that our universe had a beginning point. That there was a point in time where things were when they weren't. I've not seen any theory for how we got where we are now that has any power to explain why we exist in the first place. What started everything in motion, whatever shape our development has taken, what started it, I don't see any theory that has any, any hope of explaining that. And, and you just intellectually, friends, you shouldn't be content with that. Everything else about us, about our place in the world, about who we are, what we should be, everything flows from knowing why we're here, why we exist. You need a theory for that. You need more than a theory. And what the Bible is claiming, what God here in this passage is claiming is that God simply is. That the existence beneath and before everything else is personal. Not an amorphous life force. Not blind forces spinning according to who knows what guidance. But an intelligent and personal and glorious being whose existence owes nothing to anyone and is absolutely necessary. That's, that's the first huge implication of what God has just said. I am who I am. There is no because. There just is. There's one more implication that I want to put on your radar. If God is the great I am, if he is what is underneath all other, uh, everything else that we see and experience, if he's the fundamental reality, then my life can only ever be his. This is crucial to recognize, though. I have to admit it comes with a huge challenge to us. Everything that isn't God, everything that isn't the I am, including each one of us, comes from and depends entirely on God. But we, the Bible tells us, and our experience backs up, we are constantly prone to try to take his place for ourselves. If it's true of him, friends, it can't be true of us. When we act like it is, when we act like our existence is our own resource to be used according to what seems best to us, we sin. We sin against God, we usurp God's place, and the Bible tells us that that sin must be set right. It tells a lie about who we are and who God is. God will set the record straight. It is this role reversal that our sin represents that the Bible says will be judged as God's way of telling the truth about who is the I am. 
And that warning, that challenge to us to consider leads directly into the third statement that I want to finish with this morning. So God has given his name in answer to Moses' question about who's going with him. Moses is looking for reassurance. God has given it to him. This is an ally that you want on your side, for sure. If he just is, and he's above everything else, and he's untouchable and unfazable, then he's untouchable even for Pharaoh. There is no power who can stand up to him. There's some reassurance in what he's just said. But, but it's not good news yet. That this is who God is isn't good news by itself. Not yet, anyway. Think about it. If God just is, if he's above everything else, if he needs nothing, if everything else that is depends on him for its existence, gets what it needs from him and not the other way around, if that's who God is, if he is the great I am, how do you get a God like that on your side? How do you keep him with you? Much less when you have nothing to offer, as Israel didn't. Israel had nothing. They didn't even have their own possessions, much less anything worthy of of getting God on their side. Or much less when you've sinned against him, as we have. When you've rejected his care and loving authority. How do you get a God like this on your side, even if it would be good news to have him there? The third statement that comes out of this chapter answers this question. It's the third statement that I want you to see that makes God's self-sufficient and unmatched power good news for Israel and for us if we trust Him. The third statement is simply God's claim, I promise. We're not going to get into the details of the script that God lays out for Moses from here through the end of the chapter. What he lays out here are the twists and turns that we're going to be covering in this series from the, for the rest of the way. The rest of the way home. Everything that's about to happen in the rest of the Exodus story, God tells Moses right here is going to happen. Tells him uh, first to go to the elders and exactly what to say to them. Verses 16 and 17. Gather the elders and say, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what's been done to you in Egypt. And I promise, you see the claim? I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. I promise. Next, he tells them what to say when they go to Pharaoh. He says, then you'll go to him. And here's what you say. He gives them exact words to use. Then he tells them that Pharaoh's not going to listen, that he's going to have to force Pharaoh with a mighty hand, but that that's exactly what he'll do. And then he tells them, you're going to get to go and you're going to go laden down with treasure from Egypt that they'll give you of their own accord because I'll give you favor with them. It reads like a movie script handed to actors ahead of time by a director who knows exactly what's coming and how to make it all fit. Why would he give them this? Why all this detail in advance? This is the God who is. The God who simply exists. The God who needs nothing and never changes. Committing himself to providing this future for this people. His people. For reasons we don't know. For reasons we can't even imagine. 
and could never require of him. This God who is over all and through all and in all makes promises that he can't not keep. For now, we're given the script so we'll see what we need to see and know what we need to know when it happens. That this is a God who makes and keeps promises. That's who we're being introduced to here. And friends, at one level we're going to be walking through, trying to empathize with, put ourselves in Israel's position, their experience, to try to understand and feel what they felt and saw, see what they saw. But there's a, there's a crucial reason we need to see it. We need to see what they saw and feel what they felt and hear what they heard from this God. Because we too have promises that we're waiting to see fulfilled. And like Israel, we're still groaning. This is a story that introduces us to the God who makes promises and keeps promises. And we need to see it because, as as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, even though Israel is not in slavery in Egypt anymore, her experience there echoes down into our own experience. Paul pulls language sounding very much like Exodus chapter 2 to describe what all creation experiences now. In Romans chapter 8, verse 22, he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together. Does that sound familiar? And not only the creation, he says in verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even on this side of Jesus, even with God's presence within us, inside of us, we groan inwardly, he says, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan for it. For in this hope, we, are, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen, he says, is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? Paul's placing us into the same spot that Israel was in, in Egypt. And that rings true, doesn't it? Do you feel it? He says all of us are groaning. I am. Longing for a true home. The one that that the land full of milk and honey was only faintly foreshadowing. A land of plenty in which we have everything we need and never can even imagine lack again. Longing for redemption over sin and its effects in my life and in the lives of the people I love. Aren't you ready to be through with that? Groaning over the presence of loss in all of its forms, large and small. Groaning over the fact that we still live with doubt that hovers like a specter around so many of us, creeping around the edges of my mind and my heart every day. Sometimes I just groan. I'm just tired of it all. And I want to see it redeemed. And the God who spoke to Moses, friends, the God who spoke to Moses and into Israel's groaning, speaks still. Paul asks in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And we might push back. But, but is he, though? Is he? 
for us. And the answers of Exodus echo down through all the scriptures, through what Paul has written and straight to each one of us. I am. I promise. It's the answer we need to beat into our minds and our hearts day after day after day because sometimes, friends, we're going to look at what he's promised us and we're going to look at our lives and we're going to see all the distance between where we are and where we want to be. And like Moses, we're going to say, how? How do I bridge that gap? How do I get there from here? Who am I? We will ask. Look at all that stands against us. Look at my sin. And we need to hear God's word tell us it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? We'll look at all the terrible things in the world that we're powerless to stop. We'll know ourselves to be so vulnerable we can't protect ourselves, much less what we love. We'll know that we are suffering and we don't know how we'll suffer next month or next year. And we'll be right to ask, how? Who am I to make it through what's still in front of me? And we'll need to hear God's word say to us, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of the God who is with us in Christ Jesus our Lord. But how can we be so sure? How can Paul, how can we know it? Because the author to Hebrews has told us that the God who once spoke through Moses to him and through him, the God who once spoke in laws and prophecies has spoken now, finally, through his son. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is the God who is, who binds himself to the only things that could bind him, his own words, and has promised to bring us home. Father, we pray now that you would give us the faith that your word has promised to give us to hold on until the day when there's no need for groaning, when there's no need for hope, because we will see you as you are and live with you in the fullness of your beauty. We pray that you would hold on to us until that day and that the picture that you give to us of who you are in Exodus, both chapter three and the rest of the book, would stir up hope in us would strengthen our faith and would give us what we need to persevere. We pray this with confidence because of Jesus. Amen.